I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, January 2nd, 2022, and this is episode 152 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie, and Happy New Year. As a reminder, if you have a question for me that you would like answered on the podcast, please email me at podcast at lpenelope.com. So this week's best thing, aside from New Year, 2022 is here. Um, I'm seeing lots of memes about being cautious with 2022. You know, we're trying to treat it kindly and carefully so that it won't be a redux of 21 and 20, but I'm hopeful, ever hopeful trying to bring out that optimistic side of my personality about the new year, new beginnings, fresh starts, all of that. Very exciting. But this week's actual best thing is a movie that I watched recently, Don't Look Up, which is on Netflix. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and Rob Morgan, who I did not recognize at first. He's a Black character actor who you've seen in lots of things. He was in Mudbound. He was in Daredevil. He's wearing an atrocious wig, but he's a very good actor. And because um, I was like, who is that dude? He looks vaguely familiar, but he looks British in the face. And anyway, Rob Morgan, black all-star. <laughs> anyway, I love the movie. It is about a comet hitting Earth and nobody really believing it. It is what I think is brilliant satire on the state of the world, or at least the country, today in 2022 and 21 and for many years. Recently, as I was watching it, I was like, this is the perfect pandemic movie that is not actually about a pandemic. And then afterwards, I, re- I I watched some stuff, some videos on it. And it turns out it was written before the pandemic. It's actually about climate change. It's like an allegory for climate change. But it works perfectly for the pandemic because that's where we are now. And um, I think it's gotten some controversy I guess people who don't believe in the pandemic or in climate change may not like it. But for me, it did what I think maybe The Matrix 4 was trying to do in terms of having something to say inside the movie, but it did it well. It did it properly in terms of there are characters that you care about. There's a story that you are engaged and entertained by in addition to this message that is barely couched, but is still coming across in a film, in a cinematic story way that, for me, The Matrix failed at. So it made me wish that I could write satire. I have never tried, nor I have no plans to try, because that's not really what I do. It's not my wheelhouse. I don't do, like, comedy. There might be some humor in my writing, but I'm not trying for comedy, because I don't think that I would be good at that. Maybe if I tried really hard, I don't know, but I haven't, haven't gone there. But yeah, it's just, um, I just thought it was insightful and it worked for me really well and I enjoyed it. It's kind of long. I think it's a little over two hours. Uh, maybe it could have been trimmed a little, but it's also very poignant and touching and funny. So that is my recommendation for the week. Don't look up on Netflix. My writing update. Uh, This week, I wrote the acknowledgments for the Monsters We Defy as a part of the final review of the copy edits. So I had an author's note that I had written long ago, like in order to actually sell the book. And I added to it. I added some of the resources that I used, 
some historical authors do that, and I, I really wanted to do that. Um, Beverly Jenkins comes to mind. And at the end of her historical romances, she generally has a couple of resources in an author's note and just other details about, you know, some of the things that interested her about the time period or technology or whatever she, you know, was talking about. Um, so yeah, I, I updated my author's note. I included some of the books that I used and some of the connections personally to me in the story. And then, of course, I had to write the acknowledgments, which is always really difficult. Um, and it's like, I want to. I, I actually like reading people's acknowledgments sometimes. And I know that I've gotten feedback that people enjoy reading mine. Uh, but they're always difficult to write. You don't want to forget people. I'm sure I always do forget people. I've started in my Scrivener document having a special file for acknowledgments. So people who like beta read or give me feedback during the process or just people who during the process did something that I feel like I can thank them for in the acknowledgments. So I did that. I I wrote them one day, I let them sit for a day or two, I reread them, I let them sit another day, then reread them again. And then finally, I'm like, I'm sending this. So I sent it on uh, to my editor on Friday, the whole thing, copy edits, author's note acknowledgments, get it in one business day early, because um, it was due Monday, and got that off my plate. Actual writing, words-wise, I am still working on the short story, the um, fairy tale retelling for the fantasy romance February anthology. And that will be finished this week. So I think I, I allotted a week for it. I think it will actually be seven writing days. It might not be seven calendar days because I did not write over this weekend. And I had planned to write one day this weekend, but I'm realizing I need both days just to sort of recover. I'm feeling very tired and I'm really needing to stay on top of my self-care and just resting my brain, filling the well, because I've been pushing really hard this year and I've got another year of pushing to do. So really being very close in touch with how I'm feeling, how my creativity is feeling, you know, just trying to be better about that. And so I realize I need a rest and I'm going to take at least today as a rest. It might just be writing five days a week for a while. Often I do six days a week and, you know, I just have to play it by ear, see how I feel. But regardless, this week I only have uh, three scenes slash chapters to finish for this revision. I do want to get someone else to read it, get another set of eyes on it, a beta reader, critique partner, and then do another quick pass on it by the end of the month. Other writing that I did this past week, been working on the plot for the second Orbit book. It's still, it's still a struggle. This book is, you know, I have this kernel of an idea for the second Orbit book, which by the way, if I haven't mentioned recently, it's uh, the, the deal with Orbit was a two book deal, but they're both standalones. So, you know, when I have to write a series, I already have characters, I already have ideas. If I were to ever write a sequel to The Monsters We Defy, I've got like kernels. But coming up with a brand new from scratch idea uh, is what I, I chose to do. I could have done some sort of standalone spinoff. You know, originally I was thinking of maybe using a character, even a, a minor character from Monsters in the second book. But then I had, you know, I was on vacation for my uh, anniversary this fall, and I came up with this kernel of an idea that I was very excited about, and I'm still excited about. But the process of turning it from a kernel into a synopsis has been very difficult. 
and it's always difficult. I think also the timeline, I, I, I feel pressured to do it on a shorter timeline than I usually do with this kind of idea. Like for monsters, you know, I had the kernel of the idea. I must have been 2019. And then I spent almost a year researching, thinking about it, plotting, finding the characters and the story in the research. And then I did the writing, um, to look at the, the schedule I did last year, but you know, end of 2020, I started writing it. It was done in May 2021. So we're talking about October to January till now. I've been trying to fast track the same process that I, that I usually did or that I previously did in a year. And I thought at the beginning that that was going to be a challenge. And it has been a challenge, especially on top of all the other writing projects that are taking brain space, that are contributing to decision fatigue. So it's just, it's going slow. And I think that I have to honor that, like in pursuit of self-care and in avoidance of burnout. You know, this idea is not coming on the schedule that I wanted it to, which just means I have to push the book back, which is fine. It's what has to happen. And I have to sort of still make my peace with that because I want to be like aggressive and get things done and check things off of the list. But I also only want to write and publish books that I believe in, that I love with all my heart. And this concept I love with all my heart. I think it's a great concept, but the mechanics of the idea I'm not in love with yet. And I'm brainstorming all sorts of scenes and conflicts. You know, I've, I think I've got these characters. I've got three main characters that I'm starting to really understand. And for me, turning a kernel of an idea into a synopsis, which is a plot, a, a book that I can then go write, involves learning about the characters and figuring out what these characters do plot-wise in tandem, going back and forth. So I did some research I found a real life historical character to base my main character off of. Not as closely as I did with the monsters we defy, but this, you know, there's a, uh, these real characters that I found are the spark. And I'm kind of using their names also, but not their first and last names. I'm just using their first names because it's not these characters. Anyway, I was inspired by these real life people and their situation. And then I'm changing it and I'm adding fantasy aspects to it. And I haven't, I'm just having a hard time deciding, you know, what I'm saying, what, um, what is the adventure that they go on? I've got the basics and yeah, I'm going back and forth between learning about the characters and then deciding what they do and then digging deeper into them so that I can figure out how they would respond to these challenges. And it's just a back and forth exercise. So I'm making a lot of progress. But I also do feel like I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. And the process also needs space and time and thinking time and, you know, subconscious back of the mind time, which because of the schedule, because I was trying to get the synopsis done by the end of 2021, which did not happen. I set a new goal for the end of January, which may happen. You know, I'm going to have to check in with my editor this month and just let her know where I am. And, um, really just try to follow my own advice and be gentle with myself and not beat myself up about not coming up with this perfect, wonderful idea in, you know, the two months that I had allotted for it. Because that was aggressive and that was 
not realistic. It didn't happen, so I guess it wasn't realistic. If it was more realistic, it probably would have happened. I'm not sure about the logic on that, but we'll go with that for now. The um, the quote on my letterboard behind me, if you're on video, it was from a tweet from Ava DuVernay. She was responding to Franklin Leonard, who's a screenwriter. I believe he created The Blacklist. And he said that one of the most important things to learn as an artist is how to handle people inevitably not liking your work. And Ava responded, you've got to love it. Don't let it go until you love it. Then it doesn't really matter if someone doesn't like it because you love it. And that's where I need to get to. You know, I don't ship anything until I love it. I was rereading Savage City, the paranormal romance that I'll be self-publishing this spring because I'm sending that to the audiobook folks tomorrow. And I was skimming through parts of it and then I would stop and read and then skim and then read. And I love it, you know? And so it doesn't matter if anybody else likes it or not at that point. You know, I, I, I certainly hope that they will. But if I put something out that I just love reading and I really enjoy, then I am winning. And that's the only thing I can do. That's the only thing I can control. So I need to get to a point, at least with this plot, with the second Orbit book where I love it. And I can, as long as I love it, I can divorce myself from the outcome, from the sales, from the reviews, from the money it makes, you know, all of that stuff, because I've put something into the world that I adored. So I'm just trying to sit with that and hold that and um, let that be my guide from a person who loves to schedule and loves to meet deadlines and hates when I have to push things back, even if nobody else knows about it. You know, this was a, a target deadline, but yeah. I'm also rereading Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, because I consider that a masterwork. And I'm reading it analytically and slowly and sort of breaking down each chapter according to the story grid or my sort of modified version of the story grid. So Story Grid by Sean Coyne is a book that I mention a lot. It is sort of an intermediate to advanced plotting craft book. I wouldn't recommend it for beginners, but it really helps me a lot. And so I have these little, this little note card that I'm going to laminate. One of the things on my list is to learn how to use the laminator that I got like a year and a half ago. Cause I have all these note cards that are kind of reference note cards that are on my desk, but I really do want to laminate them. Anyway, the, um, the points of each scene. So these are the elements of storytelling. And I've added, uh, Story Grid has five, five commandments of storytelling. I end up using seven which are desire, inciting incident, progressive complications, turning point, crisis, climax, and resolution. And so I have my special notebook that I use for craft books, for notes for books, that I'm putting a section in for breaking down a masterwork, uh, Six of Crows, which I just adored when I read it the first time. And I want to sit with it and try to figure out what is it that I love so much about it? How was Lee Bardugo able to create these characters that are just universally adored by anyone who reads that book. I I told my friends to read it, and, and one of my friends does not read anything that's not romance. And so I warned her, it is not a romance, but you should read it anyway, because it is amazing. And at the end, she was like, I'm mad at you because this is not a romance, but it was great. And I'm like, yes. So yeah, why is it great? Like, what makes it great? What makes you care about the characters from the beginning? So I did the first two chapters so far, and just even just breaking down and, th and thinking about my thoughts about what did I learn about this character? Why am I already invested in them? And um, yeah, I just try to read analytically because I don't naturally read analytically. 
after ingesting all of the craft books that I have, I have started to be able to see things a little bit. Even when I watch movies, I can say, oh, act one is ending. We're going into act two now. But my natural state is not particularly analytical. I just get lost in the story, even even knowing how stories are created. Lost in a good story. I think when it's not as well written, it's easier to not get lost in it and then to see sort of the seams and see, you know, the places, how it was put together more. So slow reading, Six of Crows, making notes, just trying to spend some time with what I consider to be a masterwork and and breaking it apart and seeing how she did it. Of course, with the idea of using those techniques in my own work at some point. I do want to give a shout out to Library Addict for the comment on last week's episode when I was talking about newsletters. Um, And she just reminded me, or her comment kind of reminded me to just accept my marketing process the way that I've accepted my writing process. It's taken a long time to sort of accept the way that I do things, and it's not going to be on someone else's schedule. And it's something that I know intellectually, but I do fall victim to FOMO, the fear of missing out. I'm not immune to that. Um, and it takes a, a conscious effort to be like, okay, other people are sending newsletters out every week, every two weeks. It might be quote unquote best practices, but is that something that I can do that I want to do that fits with me? You know, it, I don't have to do everything that everyone else is doing because I, I physically and mentally cannot. And what works for other people might not work for me. But even if it did, if it's not something that I can sustain and it's not something that I feel great about, you know, it doesn't spark joy, then maybe I should just let it go. And as I'm thinking about marketing Side of a City, which is the first full-length self-published novel that I will have published since 2015, I've done short stories and novellas, but not a full-length brand new series novel. I'm looking at marketing and I'm looking at what am I going to do? Um, and that's something I'm, I'll talk about in future weeks because my situation as a hybrid author, you know, is different. I'm not going to be able to use a lot of the techniques that a lot of very successful self-publishers use because I'm not going to be publishing that frequently. The second Savage City book is not going to come out for a year. I just don't see any way that it could come out faster than that. And so slow self-publishing, I think I remember, I think it was Ronnie Lauren or someone referring to it as artisanal self-publishing. I'm going to have to look at the advice that's out there and then modify it for me. Not only my situation as a hybrid author with, you know, traditional contracts and all of that, but just as a person with a day job who runs my own business, who has limited time and energy with trying to maintain my health. You know, I can't sit here all day long. My wrists, my back, they're not going to allow that. My eyes, (laughs) you know. How can I meet my goals, like business-wise, but also just sanity and health-wise, and create a marketing plan that will honor all of those aspects of myself? So yeah, thinking about goals, I I do believe in the whole SMART goals thing, the acronym, which I have to find, but it, I know it's like measurable is the M. <laughs> I have it written down somewhere. I know it's smart goals. I do believe in that, but I I think for this, you know, I'm I'm really there's a lot of resistance for me setting specific monetary goals or even sales goals for this book. 
Part of it is fear, but part of it is just, I want a more relaxed approach. You know, I love organizing and scheduling and planning. And I think I can do those things that I love. I don't love feeling pressured to try to hit an arbitrary sales goal. Like I want to publish the book and have people read it and love it. And, um, but it's like, should I set a goal? Like I want to sell a thousand copies in three months or whatever. Like, well, what am I going to do to meet that? The things that I know that you can do to meet that are those things that I want to do. Probably not. <laughs> like some of those things I'll do. I, I am this week. One of my goals is going to be to start a marketing plan for Savage City. But I'm really resisting setting either a, a monetary or a sales number goal. Um, I think that the idea from Atomic Habits, that book by James Clear about creating systems instead of goals makes a lot of sense to me. So maybe I will focus on the systems. Like I will post, you know, on social media or I will do a, a launch week, a Facebook ad campaign or, you know, the things that I'm going to do to put it out into the world and, and then divorce them from the results. That is something that I think will take stress off of my plate and just spark a little bit more joy inside of me. So smart goals are generally a great idea, but it's also really important to be keeping tabs on yourself and to be knowing yourself and where you are. And maybe this is not a season for smart goals. You know, this is a season for smart systems that I can put into place to launch and market the book that won't leave me feeling empty or make me unhappy or broke. <laughs> That's where we are right now. Finally, there have been a number of writing world controversies that I don't really feel like getting into. I will uh, put a link in the show notes to Jason Stanford's Grapevine newsletter where he covers science fiction and fantasy news and controversies. Um, there was an article that I read from his newsletter about something that was going on in sci-fi and fantasy. And um, it was an interview with uh, an author who had written a short story, the helicopter, the attack helicopter story, which if you're familiar with that, link in the show notes if you want to dive into that whole debacle. But it was a very controversial short story. And the artist, the author, had it removed from the uh, online magazine where it appeared and then checked herself into the hospital. She had a whole breakdown because she saw all the criticism and all of the drama around it. And it just got me thinking that and some of the other drama that I saw happening in other spheres, in romance, um, not just sci-fi and fantasy, had me thinking about anonymous art, you know? Should we all move to that? Because a lot of the the things that I'm seeing are identity-based. It's like, you know, in this particular case, it was a trans author and, and people were questioning because the author didn't identify herself as trans and the story had to do with trans characters. There was questions about the authenticity. And I remember a case uh, a year or two ago where there was this beautiful illustrated cover that came out for a romance book, two black characters on the cover, black romance Landia was, you know, looking forward to this until the author photo came out and it was a person who looked very white and was white <laughs> who had written this book. And then the, the the tone of the conversation changed. And it's like, there's very good reasons for wanting diversity in publishing. I'm a proponent of diversity in publishing as well. 
But part of me is like, what if we just all published our books anonymously? So you didn't know who wrote it. So you just read the book on its own merit. And if you, because I've read books with Black characters that just felt wrong. And I go and look up the author and I'm like, obviously this was not a Black person because something was off here. And there's that. But what if all the work just stood, stood on its own, you know, and we didn't have to look up the race or the gender or sexual identity of of the author to judge it against our idea of what was in the work, you know? If a white author wants to write people of color characters and straight authors want to write queer characters, can they just stand on their own? Can we look at them as the work and not judge whether the author has the right to tell those stories? And then from a business publishing perspective, can publishers just publish the work that is good without having to worry about, oh, we can't publish that because your identity doesn't match the identity of your characters and we'll get in trouble. It's a question that I thought about just as as I was pinged and tweeted and texted about all these different things happening. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, I know what's going on, but um, should it be going on? There's valid concerns, but could the concerns be alleviated if it wasn't like, oh, we already have our Latina author for this season. We can't publish your book um, or insert whatever marginalized identity there if it's just the story, regardless of who wrote it. I guess I'm looking for fairness, which is what marginalized authors have been looking for. And and if there's an overcorrection happening now, then perhaps it's one that needed to happen and eventually the pendulum will swing backwards. I mean, I don't think we ever get fairness, and no one's ever guaranteed fairness. The world is not fair. Because what does fair even mean? But part of me just longs for a, a, a time when we can divorce the artist from the art. We can divorce their identity, their politics, their crimes, whatever, and just look at the art on its own and appreciate it, you know? I'm not planning to watch the um, Harry Potter reunion thing, but, you know, I know a lot of people feel very torn about Harry Potter because of their perception of the author now that has changed. So shouldn't we just separate it? Like, let artists be people, be as flawed as they are, and appreciate their art completely separately. I guess it's not realistic, but still a thing that I think would be better if I was in charge. But there was a quote that um, from the Vox article about the attack helicopter story from the author, Isabel Fall. And she said, basically talking about putting people in boxes. She says, we need the boxes to argue over. I do not want to be in a box. I want to sift through your fingers, to vanish, to be unseen. And that I thought was beautiful, and I thought that was very poignant. And as a writer, it's sort of what I would wish also for myself, if it were ever possible. So that is it for me for this week. Goals for the coming week are finish the short story, get back into that 1830s proposal that I have to write, be plotting Orbit Book 2. I think that's it. I'm finally starting to shed projects, turn things in, send things off, um, which is nice, and only and get the number of things I'm working on at the same time down to hopefully a more reasonable number. 
So my wish for you is a beautiful, happy and healthy, vibrant 2022 that is full of wonderful things and the strength to handle all of the not wonderful things that are sure to happen as well. And I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcast.